This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at ranchobaptistchurch.org. This week's message by Mike Jones, a psalm to be thankful for. The original date of this message was the 13th of November, 2022. When Pastor... Jason asked me to preach about a month ago. I was praying about a topic for today, and I looked at the calendar, and I realized that today would be about 10 days out from Thanksgiving, and so I decided to preach on something uh, to be thankful for. Thanksgiving Day sort of gets lost between Halloween and Christmas, right? Um, I received a text from my daughter, Michelle, and it had a little cartoon, and it pictured Cinderella and the fairy godmother holding her little wand. And the fairy godmother says, and when the clock strikes midnight, Halloween will turn into Christmas. Uh, Halloween kind of gets lost, and even on Halloween Day, or excuse me, on <laughs> Thanksgiving Day, uh, the Macy's Parade is on TV. It starts out with this gigantic turkey turkey that's on a float, and then the parade ends with Santa Claus, who conveniently stops right into the front of Macy's and makes his way into the store. On Thanksgiving, uh, uh, we're about 10 days out, and I, I wanted us to be and hope that we can be a little bit more intentional about, about what we do over the next 10 days as we lead up to Thanksgiving. I hope that we can have an attitude of gratitude. At our house, we have about eight signs to remind us to be thankful. There are four of them that simply say, give thanks. And then there are four other ones that are a little more descriptive. Over the fireplace, there's an inscription that says, um, and everything, give thanks. And then above the TV, there are building blocks that read, count your blessings. And I actually thought about that being the title for today. And in the kitchen, there's a sign that says, thankful, grateful, and truly blessed. And then in the bathroom, I was reminded by a sign that said, there's always something to be thankful for, and I'm glad there were three rolls of toilet paper there. Well, if I, if you were to ask, if I was to ask you this morning, what are you thankful for? If I took the microphone and went around, uh, probably within the first two or three um, um, volunteers, somebody would say, I'm thankful for my salvation and what the Lord has done for me, right? And if I were to ask you the same thing, that would be right at the top of your list. There's always something to be thankful for, and I'm thankful for Psalm 103. Some commentators say that this is a psalm about grace. Some believe it's a psalm about mercy. I think it's all those things, but overall, I believe The theme is forgiveness. And it's my favorite psalm, and I go to it often for encouragement and to be reminded of God's love and forgiveness. So Psalm 103 is a psalm to be thankful for. And in a moment, we're going to look at five reasons to be thankful for Psalm 103. But before we do that, let's open our Bibles or our devices and turn to Psalm 103. And we'll just read through this together to get the overall picture in our minds. Psalm 103. It's somewhere in the middle of your Bible. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion? Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle? The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made, ways, made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, you his host, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, Psalm 104 is a psalm to be thankful for. The first reason that we can be thankful for this psalm is because it informs us about God's unique nature. Most of the psalm actually reveals something about God's nature. It's interesting, though, that the psalmist begins with God's name. Look at verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. God's name is holy. Holy basically means set apart. It is special. It is unique. His name is exclusive. But what is his name? We say God, we say Lord, but what is God's name? Notice in verse 1, the translators uh, capitalize all the letters for Lord. They do that so that we can distinguish that from any other kind of Lord. This is God's covenant name to his people. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, God told Moses, I want you to go out and set my people free. Moses was to go to Egypt and bring the people out of captivity. And Moses is having this conversation with God, and he says, you know, the people are going to ask me, who sent you? What is God? I'm doing this for God. What is his name? And then reading from the Living Standard Bible, or excuse me, the Legacy Standard Bible, God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. And he said, said, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, that is God's Hebrew name that he asked Israel to call him by, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name from generation to generation. The effect of revealing his name was to say simply that it's distinct from any other God. It describes his self-sufficiency, his, um, yeah, his self-existence. I am who I am. And then speaking through Isaiah, God said, again from the Legacy Standard Bible, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no other God. God's name is unique. It is special. But this verse also tells us that it's holy. God's name is holy. In Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, God said, You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? Well, it means to use God's name flippantly, to throw it around without thinking. Um, I watched a program this week, and I think within about 10 minutes, I heard the person on TV say about 15 times, Oh, my God! That, friends, is an example of using God's name in vain. It's using it like an exclamation mark. Oh my God, I didn't get a parking space today. It was terrible. That is using God's name irreverently, flippantly, irreligiously. And Jesus' name is holy also because Jesus is God. As we go through the book of John, Pastor Jason will point out that there are several I am statements in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. In fact, when the soldiers and the temple police came to arrest Jesus in the garden, you'll remember that they arrived and Jesus asked, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. Now, in the original, he is not in there. That's why in some translations, you'll see it in italics. It's not in the original Greek. When they asked him who you are, Jesus said, I am, and it knocked all the soldiers right back on their, on their keisters. They all fell down to the ground. Why? Because Jesus is God. He is the I am. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> the battery fell out and have a little clicker here. I got too excited and knocked everything over. So we are not to use God's name flippantly, throw it away as around a um, without using it properly. We can bless the Lord or Yahweh with all that is in us because his name is holy. See, back in business, good. Secondly, 
we can be thankful for this psalm because it informs us about God's loving mercy. It's helpful to understand Hebrew poetry. Uh, our poetry is, has rhyme. Roses are red, violets are blue, so on. But Hebrew poetry is not like that. In Hebrew poetry, often the second and third line reinforces the first line. So when you look at verse 2, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Our motivation to bless the Lord comes as we remember all that God has done for us. You know, it's so easy to forget our blessings, right? Uh, We get wrapped up in our own little problems. Things don't go right. We're going through difficulty. We mumble. We grumble. But when we focus on all his benefits and all the things that he has done for us, that causes us to have hearts of thanksgiving and praise. Now, in the rest of these verses, from verses 3 through 19, David describes Yahweh's benefits uh, and his mercy. Mercy is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve God's mercy, right? You're with me. Okay. We don't deserve God's mercy. And um, so let's look at verse 3. First benefit, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Now again, the second line reinforces the first line. God in his mercy forgives your sins and my sins, and he removes the guilt. The disease uh, and the healing may be the result of um, sin, and then the healing is restoration. We see an example of this in David's confession in Psalm 32. Why don't you turn, hold your place here and turn to Psalm 32, and we'll see how this works. Psalm 32, starting at verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was drained away as with the fervent heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive me the guilt of my sin. So God in his mercy forgives our sin This isn't always necessarily, uh, you can't claim this verse, that uh, God is going to heal all disease. It's the disease of sin. And God, uh, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God forgave us, right? So he takes away that guilt from our sin and restores us. Some scholars think the disease could also be a metaphor for some adversity or other setbacks. But either way, it's because of God's mercy that he forgives and heals. And then another benefit is in verse 4. It says, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The Old Testament term redeem is used to release 
people from slavery. It can also mean to uh, purchase somebody. Um, lost my place here. To redeem somebody. Um, well, you remember the story of Ruth and Naomi and how the kinsman redeemer Boaz redeemed her. He did the customary things he needed to clear things so that he could redeem um, Ruth and make him, make her his wife. So it means to buy or purchase with a price. And we need to remember that redemption um, started in the heart of God. We were redeemed by God, but Jesus paid the price. Peter wrote, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So redemption started in the heart of God. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, and it was Jesus who came and redeemed us. God is also called the Goel. That term in Hebrew means redeemer. Job used it this way when he said, As for me, I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth. And not only did God redeem us and save us from the pit and eternal destruction, it says in verse 4, he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Loving kindness and steadfast love is the, uh, or steadfast love, is the Hebrew word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. The principal meaning of hesed is loyal love, covenant love. It's God's love. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, God said, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, hesed, love, with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The good news for us is that God's hesed love was extended to us through Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Titus, and he said, and I'm reading from the ESV, in Titus 3, verses 4 through 6. But when the goodness of and loving kindness, there's that word again, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God's provision of Jesus Christ is the most convincing proof of God's hesed, loving, steadfast kindness and mercy. Then in verse 5, it tells us another benefit of the Lord. It says, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. God blesses us with family and with homes, the furniture to go in those homes. We have friends, we have this church to come to, to hear God's word, to sing his praises, to be built up in our faith. He gives us cars so that we can get to church, and he blesses us over and over again. And those things renew us. We have 35 men up at a retreat this weekend. 
they're getting their, battery, their spiritual batteries charged. That's God's goodness and, and blessing. And then it says in verses 6 and 7, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Well, we just referred to the Exodus, and the Exodus, God delivering the people out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land, parting the Red Sea so that they could go across on dry ground. This was pivotal in Israel's history, and you'll read throughout the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament constant references back to that momentous occasion when God delivered his people. Those were the righteous deeds he, some of the righteous deeds he performed for Moses and the sons of Israel. God does not tolerate injustice. Those Israelites were in captivity for, I think it was 400 years. 400 years, that's long, that's twice as long as our American history. All they had known was slavery. That's why they didn't even know who the God was that was going to deliver them. That's why they had to ask what his name was. But God doesn't let injustice go unnoticed. And when he does act, he acts in righteousness. All the plagues and all the death and everything that came upon the Egyptians, God did in his righteousness, his righteous, as a righteous act. It's the same kind of righteousness when Jesus went into the temple and he drove out the money changers. You'll remember that uh, the money changers were there, and especially at Passover, people, the foreigners, came from all over the place, but they had their own currency. That currency had to be converted into the temple currency. But in the process of that, the money changers were exacting absorbent fees in order to do that. They were milking the people and taking advantage of them. That's what upset Jesus and caused him to get a whip and drive them out. That is righteous justice that's being meted out by God. I get lost. (laughs) I'm old. And then verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's loving kindness, his hesed love, his steadfast love is repeated in verses 4 and 8 and 11 and 17. God's loving mercy ought to cause us to bless the Lord with all that is within us. Amen? And then we can be thankful for this psalm because it informs us about God's complete forgiveness. David now explains that the Lord, or Yahweh, uh, mercifully forgives sins. Verses 9 and 10, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. The Lord doesn't continue to strive with us or to keep on criticizing us. Have you ever known somebody who will never let you forget your mistakes. They'll throw up terms like, well, you had just done what I said. Or um, if you hadn't gotten yourself into X, Y, Z, or there you go again, they have this way of bringing up the past and putting it back on you and uh, putting a guilt trip on you. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't strive with us. 
He doesn't continually take our past and use it to beat us down, but Satan does. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. In Revelation, it says he accuses us day and night before God. And that's his MO. There's a big difference between the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin and Satan throwing our, the guilt of our uh, past up in our face. The Holy Spirit convicts, and when he convicts, he's doing that to bring us back to God, to get us to a point where we confess our sin and get back into the right relationship with God. The Holy Spirit convicts, but Satan condemns. Satan is always trying to beat us down, always trying to keep us under the thumb, always causing us to doubt our salvation or to doubt our forgiveness so that we never enjoy and appreciate the forgiveness that we have in God through Christ. If you have sinned and you sincerely have repented from that, uh, you're, fr- you're free. You're, you're not going to be condemned over and over again by God because there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. When we for- accept, excuse me, when we sin and we, according to 1 John 1, 9, confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us. It says, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all our sins, excuse me, our sins, and to cleanse us from what? All, our un- all unrighteousness. All doesn't mean some. All means all, and all is all means. So if you have sinned and you have repented, according to 1 John 1, 9, But then you start feeling condemned again. That is not coming from God. That's coming from the enemy. On another note, you may have confessed that sin, but now you still have something nagging at you. You're being convicted, and the Holy Spirit might be convicting you because you still may need to make something right. Maybe the sin that needed to be confessed was because there was a rift between you and somebody else. And you've ask for forgiveness, but you need to go and get that right, and the Holy Spirit may continue to convict you so that you get that relationship right. That's not a matter of forgiveness. That's a matter of you being reconciled to somebody else. Another situation where after you've confessed something, you still might feel you're being nagged, wholly nagged, is because you may need to make restitution for for something. When I was about 15 and a half, I started working at a Schwinn bicycle store in Pomona. And over the years, I worked there about six years. Occasionally, I took a little money from the cash register, maybe take home a can of spray paint or WD-40 or other things. I pilfered and I stole from the store. Later on, before we went to Bible college, Virginia and I this is many years later, Virginia and I wanted to go with a clean slate. We tried to go through our past and get all those kind of issues out of the way. If there's something that needed to be done, somebody we needed to reconcile with, we wanted to get that out of the way so that we could have a clean slate going into the ministry. But there was one thing I didn't deal with, and that was this issue of stealing. 
Well, during the years we went to Bible college, two or three summers, we came down from Canada and I worked at, uh, for friends who had their own bike stores. And when I was in Pomona, I worked with Wes, the owner, and Harold, who was the manager. Over the years, Harold had bought a store and he had a store in Upland. And I was actually closer to Harold than I was the owner, Wes. And Harold would give me uh, plenty of work. I could make some money to get back to Bible school the next year. <clears throat> and Wes had the store <clears throat> over in Claremont at this time. And one morning, and I was <clears throat> staying at my mom's house during this time, one morning about 5 o'clock, it was, it was as if I got teased. I like jumped right out of bed or right up, wide awake. And it was the Lord saying, you're going to deal with this issue. Because year after year, I'd come to California, and the Holy Spirit would be saying, you need to make this right. And I would say, well, it's under the blood. I've, I've asked forgiveness. I'm going to move on. But it went go away. And so that morning, God made it clear to me, I'm going to take care, get this taken care of, Mike. You're going to take care of this. So that morning, I went to work for Harold. And while I was working with Harold, Wes called over. It's funny how the way, way the Lord works things out. And Wes needed a couple of bikes and some things, and Harold and Wes would exchange things back and forth. They were still friends, and even though they were competitors, they still worked uh, things out. And so Wes needed these goods, and I, when Harold told me, I said, I'll take them over to Wes. So I got the truck, loaded up the goods, and I went over to see Wes. And when I was done with the, giving him the goods and stuff, I got him aside, and I said, you know, there's something I have to tell you. And I told him what I just explained to you. That was a rock that God took off my wagon And you see, there's a difference between the enemy beating you up and condemning you over things that you've done in the past for which you have forgiven and you need to accept that forgiveness. But there also may be things that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of. Even though you have God's forgiveness, you still may need to reconcile with somebody. You may need to make restitution or something like that. So we need to be careful that we don't ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit in those areas. And then coming back to Psalm 103, verse 10, God says he, or the psalmist says, God doesn't deal with us according to our sins and iniquities. When I thought of this, I thought of another psalm that David wrote in Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. He says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, Who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. God doesn't deal in like kind with our every little sin. Um, However, we can make the mistake of thinking that because the shoe doesn't drop the moment we do something, that God is approving that or looking the other way. We need to be sure that we are not abusing God's mercy and grace. But if God hit us over and over again with every, every time we trip up or we blow it, we'd be crushed. We wouldn't be able to live the Christian life. And how do we know that God's, the Lord's uh, forgiveness is complete? Well, let's look at verses 10 and 13. I love these verses. I hope you do too. 
It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. One way to describe God's loving kindness would be to say that it's immeasurable. Can anyone measure the distance, distance from the earth to the heavens? Okay, if you were in a rocket here and you took off and you had plenty of fuel and could go endlessly, when would you hit the top where you'd bounce back and come down? You just keep on going. The universe is infinite. There's no end out there. Or if I um, were to tell Shane, I want you to go that way, and I told Mike here, I want you to go that way, west, east, I'm not sure where I'm going here, but, and you were to walk out that way, when would they intersect? They wouldn't. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Our sins have been removed as far as possible, or excuse me, as far as it's possible to imagine. It's a statement of complete and utter forgiveness. Once our sins have been removed, we are no longer accountable accountable for them. We call that justification judicially before God. In the courtroom of God, your sin is off the docket and over and done with. So to summarize our complete forgiveness, when you got saved, all your sins, past, present, and future, were paid for by Christ's sacrifice and shed blood. Judicially, you are forgiven. And that begs the question, what about the Old Testament people? Jesus hadn't come, right? So how did their sins get forgiven? Well, one way to think of it is they were saved on credit. All the blood of the animals and the goats and the bulls and all those offerings, the writer of Hebrews tells us, could never take away the sins. But he, having offered himself once for all, took care of it. All those sacrifices of the Old Testament appeased God, but they looked forward to the cross. From our point, we look back to the cross. The Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So all our sins were forgiven. And as you go through life and you sin, you don't lose your salvation, but your fellowship with God is broken. If I get in an argument with my wife, which, oh, it never happens these days, but, and I'll have to confess that later. But uh, if we get into an argument, we might have a strained relationship, right? And when you sin, the relationship with God becomes broken, it's strained. But when we confess, that relationship gets restored. And You'll always be tempted to doubt your complete forgiveness for a a couple of reasons. One is because Satan will continue to accuse you to keep you defeated. He doesn't want you to believe what we just read or what we understand. He wants to make you think that your sin is unforgivable. unforgivable. So he's always going to try to accuse you, to keep you defeated, to keep you down, Another reason we fail to um, 
that we struggle with is we fail to grasp God's provision. What I mean by that is we don't accept the statement of Scripture. Yes, I know, I know that, that verse that you just read. I know that's good for other people, but it's not for me. Oh, if you'd only known what I did. Look, folks, if, they put on the, if anybody put on the screen here what I've done in my lifetime, I couldn't even show my face here. But it's covered by the blood of Christ. So the solution is to take God's word as fact and not rely on your feelings. We need to memorize verses like verses 10 and 12 so that when those thoughts come into our mind, we can take that and take God's word and quote the verse, quote it out loud to reinforce that, yes, I am forgiven because based on what God's word says, I am forgiven. If you can't accept what the scripture says, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, when you say, no, I'm not really forgiven, what you really are doing is impugning the finished work of Christ on the cross. When Jesus said it's finished and for you to come along and say, no, it doesn't cover my sin, that is a slap in the face to God. So we need to understand and accept and take God's word and not rely on our feelings. And this is one reason why I'm thankful for this psalm, because when I've blown it and I can't understand why the Lord should forgive me again, I come back to this psalm and it reminds me of God's mercy and God's loving kindness and God's complete forgiveness. And he reassures me through his word that I am forgiven. And then the fourth reason we can be thankful for this psalm is because it informs us about God's eternal love. In these verses, 13 and 18, David wrote about man's life, which is transitory, and God's life, which is eternal. And the fact that God deals with us like a father. Verses 13 and 14, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Thankfully, God knows what we're made of. Though he expects godliness, he understands our human frailty. He understands when we blow it. He understands when our back's against the wall and we're just crying out and we don't know what's going on and we don't even know which way to turn. He doesn't thumb down on us and go, what an example of a Christian you are. He's a father. He understands. We, we, we have had children. Uh, we see the, you know, the spilt milk, the accidents. Uh, one of our kids took a marker and marked all over the wall one time. He dealt, he, he, we don't go, you know, taking our kid by the hand and beating him over the head with that, and neither, neither does God. The word for compassion here is a Hebrew word, raha. It carries the meaning of love mixed with mercy or pity, especially for those who are weak or helpless. Think for a moment, here is Yahweh, the self-existent I am, 
who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, in whose presence the uh, seraphim and cherubim veil their faces, this holy God, the God that Isaiah saw. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And this awesome God deals with us as children. To me, that's mind-blowing. I can't even get my head around that. But it's reassuring from God's word that that's the way this mighty, awesome, holy God would relate to me and to you. I'm thankful that God knows what we're made of. Then David compares the brevity and weakness of man's existence and the greatness of God's everlasting love. In verses 15 through 18, it says, As for for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind passes over it, it is gone, and its place acknowledges it no longer. And now here's a contrast. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord's hesed, his loving kindness, his steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. It is an eternal love. It is a complete love. Look at uh, Romans 8, chapter, uh, or chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. Hold your place here and turn to Romans chapter 8. I don't hear the pages flipping yet. I don't hear the uh, devices clicking. God's love is eternal. Romans 8, starting at verse 35 Who shall separate us from the love of God, excuse me, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 36, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yahweh, God, is the only being who has not been created. He self-exists from all eternity. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the creator. Everything else in the universe came into being by God's design. There is nothing. If God forgives us and loves us, there is nothing in the universe that can separate us from that love because every other thing is a created item. Demons were created by God. The elect angels, the holy angels were created by God. The universe and everything in it was created by God. And because he is eternal, his love is eternal, and it can never be broken. 
And then we can be thankful for this psalm because it informs us about God's sovereign rule. Yahweh, the Lord, is not just a national deity. He is not just the God of Israel. As the only God, we read that earlier, there is no other God besides him. Oh, yeah, there are other people who worship gods, but those aren't gods. They are the uh, things that have been manufactured by us. Remember in the wilderness, after they came through the Exodus, the Israelites formed a golden calf. Why did they do that? That was their perception of what they thought God was like. And, of course, uh, God uh, judged them for that. So there is only one God. God is the king of the universe. Verse 19 here, and uh, back in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Well, what does it mean to be sovereign? We just saw the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, who was a sovereign. Uh, That gives us a picture of what a sovereign looks like. King Nebuchadnezzar learned about sovereignty the hard way. You'll remember that King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 was walking around his palace and looking out, and he said, Is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And then it says, and as he was talking, a voice from heaven came and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. His sovereignty was removed, and he found himself removed from man out in the fields, eating grass like the cattle. His hair grew out to be like eagle's feathers, and his fingernails grew out to be like eagle's claws. And then at the end of that time, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes to heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are as regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign. He reports to nobody. God is sovereign, and his sovereignty rules over all. This this explanation from King Nebuchadnezzar is probably the best description of sovereignty you will find in the Bible. Verses 20 through 22, next David declares that the Lord's dominion is over all the earth. Then he calls all the creatures in heaven, serving the Lord to join with all creation in the praise of God. So in an essence, we end up where we began. Look at verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, all you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Do you think an angel ever said, yeah, I know you told me to do that, but I'm going to think about it. That's why Jesus said, thy will be done, thy will in heaven. Got to get this right. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Yeah, verse 21. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In a moment, the worship team is going to come and lead us in praise so that we can bless the Lord with all that is within us. This is in half-hearted praise. With everything that is within us, what does that look like? John Piper wrote, We know that authentic praise is a pleasing experience, not a displeasing experience. If we are displeased with the one we are praising and do not like to praise them, we are hypocrites. As when we give a standing ovation to a mediocre performance because everyone else is standing. Genuine praise is something we love to do, or we are not doing the real thing. I trust as we've been reminded of all our benefits, all God's goodness, all his sovereign power, his mercy, his loving kindness and forgiveness, that we will have hearts uh, filled with praise as we, in a moment, bless the Lord. And then by way of further application, I just suggest that uh, over the next five days, we be intentional about being thanksgiving or being thankful. Uh, One idea I had was uh, take your camera on your phone, hold up your bulletin notes, snap a picture of that. And as you go through the next five days, take one of those items and meditate on it. Praise the name of the Lord. Revere his name. Remember all that his name encompasses, and so on through the list. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time looking at your word. Lord, thinking of your great name, all that represents in you and of you, all your attributes, your perfections. We think of your loving mercy and kindness, forgiving us from all our sins so that we continually have a clean slate before you. And when we write things on that slate that are less than what we ought to be, we can confess that and you wipe that slate clean again. We thank you for your forgiveness. As we go throughout this week and into the season and and really throughout our life, help us to be a people who are thankful and grateful and to have an attitude of gratitude. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.